This is Floss Weekly. I'm Doc Searles. And this week, Jonathan Bennett and I talk with Lubos Coatsman and Douglas DeMaio of SUSE about Open SUSE and LEAP and all kinds of adjacent topics that are really important and moving fast and you need to hear it. And that is coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Floss Weekly, episode 718, recorded Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. Future of OpenSUSE Leap. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Collide. That's Collide with a K. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, regardless of their operating system. Visit collide.com slash floss to learn more and activate a free 14-day trial today, no credit card required. And by Barracuda. Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. Phishing, conversation hacking, ransomware, plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Get your free ebook at barracuda.com slash twit. Hello again, everyone, everywhere. I am Doc Searles. This is Floss Weekly, and I am joined this week by Jonathan Bennett himself. And myself. Uh, I'm here myself. He's <laughs> you're 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 like a month away from having your third child, which is strange for somebody who looks like he's yeah. he's <laughs> too too 19. young or too old. <laughs> no, no, too young, man. <laughs> I had my third when I was too old. Man, I was, I was almost fifty. <laughs> some, some days I feel like I'm too old. Goodness! Yeah. Oh. Wow, I'll bet. Yeah, I bet that's intense. So, so we're we're off to a little bit of a late start. So, um, are you you've been keeping up with what's going on with Susa over the years? Uh, you and, know, a little bit. Um, I I mainly run Red Hat products, so Fedora, CentOS. Uh, Red Hat products and Red Hat derivatives. We'll put it that way. Um, and so now I've, I've pretty much moved to Rocky, although I've got a couple of machines that are uh, Alma Linux. <clears throat> and I will see the, the SUSE guys as <clears throat> cousins, maybe, because they tend to use RPM to build their mm. distros as well. Um, and then there's also, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, but there's some services that SUSE provides for, for the, you know, the entire ecosystem. That's really helpful. Um, so there's some there's some neat stuff that SUSE does that, that you know I've used and I'm aware of. When when CentOS made their big change from CentOS to CentOS Stream, uh, SUSE was actually one of the options that I really considered. So um, it would have been Slash SUSE Linux Enterprise um, to to move a bunch of servers to. Didn't need to because other things popped up, but definitely definitely paid attention to what they're doing. We've actually well, had. Yeah, we have we have a lot to talk about. So let me let me hurry up and 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 get into the bios of not one but two gents that we have here, uh, 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 which is a uh, uh, Lubos Kotzman and uh, Douglas DeMaio. Uh, Lubos has been working for Susi uh, from, and I'm never sure whether what the right pronunciation is because I know it's in a country Susi, but anyway, uh, in the Czech Republic uh, and the release manager for. Uh, Open SUSE Leap and Leap Micro. He's the driver of Adaptable Linux Platform Community Workgroup. Um, uh, owns the open source SUSE open source policy that was inherited from a predecessor two years ago. Uh, helping Doug with with the project representation at conferences in the Czech Republic, and he tries to help with anything related to SUSE's cooperation with young talents. I'll let him go into more about that. Um, <clears throat> uh, Douglas is a board member and manager of the Open SUSE project. Um, Marketing communications and event manager for it as well. Free open source and software enthusiast and an expat and veteran or an army veteran and SoCal native and an 805 beer, beer, beer fan. And of course I'm <laughs> not in Santa Barbara right now, but I am a Santa Barbarian. And I, and when I was drinking, I drank 805 beer, which is, which is the regional, the regional beer from there. So I'll actually start with a question for that. Did, are are you drinking that as an expat now somewhere, uh, Douglas? <laughs> Funny enough, the Open Sousa beer, um, the Open Sousa beer that we have that we bring to Fosdom, uh, the brewery here in the town, 
uh, did a co-brew with 805 a few years back. So, um, but, but we can't actually get it over here. I mean, we have, we have a lot of good beer in Germany, um, where, where I live. So, but when I go back, of course I drink 805. It's it. So to put that in full context, the area code for, um, central and, and, and South coastal California is the area code 805. And it's in my phone, (laughs) an 805 phone. And when people see it, sometimes I, I get this old home kind of thing, you know, like, oh, wow, you're from 805, you know, is, is that like Santa Maria or, or Santa Barbara or, or Ventura? It's a, it's a thing. It's a, it's probably more identifiable as where you're from, I think, than some others. You know, I don't know. That's, that's probably about as far as we want to go into that. So, so tell us about, give us the, the kind of the opening framish on, on what um, Open Sousa Leap is or are. Me or the, go ahead, Lubush. Right, right. Be the release manager, so <laughs> makes sense actually. So we have not just one but multiple distributions right now. You know, each users they have their own preference, right? Somebody actually likes to get stuff fast. He likes to be uh, able to get the latest changes as soon as possible. And some people are a little bit more on the conservative side, and they like the you know usual one year or six months relief release cadence. So the leave would be very typical distribution with uh, basically yearly cadence. So is it uh, every 12 months, uh, the support is for 18. So there is six months overlap in between the releases where we actually keep updating the previous version. And it's really aiming at, uh, you know, if, if I would be recommending somebody like first open source based distribution, uh, it would be probably leap. It's, it's the most traditional. Uh, it will be probably the easiest to get used to. And the other distros that are Totally worth mentioning is Tumbleweed. That's the rolling distro you've probably heard about. So if you would be uh, into Arch and stuff, I guess like Tumbleweed would be probably better match for you than than Leap. And then we have MicroS, which is the third uh, I would say most used out of everything that we have, and that's uh, that's basically Tumbleweed on steroids. Um, it's it's combining so its desktop is combining flatpacks, uh, which is a little bit unusual for us, right? So the Firefox, uh, most of GNOME actually comes from flatpacks there. And uh, and it's immutable, which I'm not sure if you are aware of, but has read-only partition. All the, uh, all the updates go through transactional updates. You're using BTRFS, so snapshot. You're updating snapshot, rebooting into the changes rather than destroying your current system in case of a failed update. So, yep, Leap would be the traditional one, probably closest to what people are used to. And then how does uh, how does Linux SUSE Linux Enterprise? Right. Wow, ah. that came out really weird. How does that fit in there? I- I should have actually started with that, right? So Leap is basically based on the packages, the binary packages from SLES, right? Um, so in the past, we used to rebuild the sources. That was basically Leap. Uh, so same release cadence as SLES. Uh, same sources just rebuilt with maybe different set of macros, maybe enabling different features on certain packages. And then uh, in 15.3, two years ago, we've received an idea from product management. Hey, what if you would make it identical? So if we... We migrate from non-paid to paid, from Leap to Slash. Takes like two minutes. You exchange few branding packages and and done. So uh, since about two years ago, we actually use Slash packages plus branding, and we supply I don't know eight thousand community packages on top of Slash, and that would be basically Leap. Uh, excellent. And the story actually started. Uh, well, I mean, it's been it's been progressing ever since I believe it was two thousand. 16, I was in a meeting when they talked about releasing the first uh, binary binaries for it, actually. Um, and and it, it was uh, it was a good move. And I mean, that's kind of where you got uh, or where you have a leap 42, which that could be another conversation, some other point. Right. But uh, that's where it all started. Leap, leap 42. That sounds like a great band name. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, traditionally, we we were um, so our last regular release, which was similar to let's say let's say Fedora on the six month release cycle, was um, was thirteen point two, and so uh, this meeting happened, and uh, we looked at uh, um, bringing the SLES and uh, and well, Open SUSE at the time is what it was called, uh, a little bit closer, and so we ended up uh, having to rename. Um, we ended up renaming the distribution so that people could identify with 
the differences. So you have uh, tumbleweed was sort of like beginning, let's say, to be redone because it was started off by Greg KH. Um, and then, uh, and so we needed something else to at least like explain to people the differences. And so um, we ended up coming up with, uh, well, someone in the community came up with a leap. And of course, the at the time, it was uh, to align with SLEE 12. So at least we had a storyline there, like, you know, OpenSUSE Leap is always like 30 ahead. Um, but, but then that kind of <laughs> changed a little bit later. And we started off with 42 because traditionally within SUSE and OpenSUSE, a lot of projects that have started have had their main release uh, as 4.2 or 42. Yes, being <laughs> one of those. Nice. Now, I, I, if I heard correctly, you pronounce it SLEE instead of SLEZ uh, for the, the actual uh, so enterprise offering? It's the family of the products, right? There is no product mm -hmm. called SLEE, but it's the SUSE Linux enterprise product family that would be SLEZ, SLED, and so on. So uh, ah, employees refer okay. usually to SLEE as a set of products or solutions, if you want. Uh, but we usually mean, mean SLEZ, like in 99% of cases. <laughs> okay. It's it's always fun to talk to someone for the first time because, you know, you've seen it in text. You've probably sent emails, IRC about it. And the first time you hear like the original creator or somebody that works for the company pronounce something, your mind is kind of blown. Like I've been right, I've been yeah. saying this wrong. My my inner narrator has gotten this wrong for years and years. What in the world? <laughs> um, well, you know, Sue, I think you're all saying it correct. You know, the, the, I know there's a whole video on uh, how to pronounce the name of it. <laughs> Susa, Susa, yeah, Susie. I, I read years ago that it is to be pronounced the same way as the American band writer, uh, John Philip Souza. and so that's pretty much what I, what I've stuck with until if if one of it's, you gentlemen want to correct me and tell me that I'm not quite right, I would say you're correct there. I mean, right. then it, then again, you have phonetics, and that's one thing that uh, is a little bit more uh, different. I mean, Lubash could probably. Clarify that so with his name. In know? Czech Republic, we would say, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in Czech Republic, you would say Suze. In Germany, some people say Suze. Depends also on the region. They really pronounce Z for the hidden S. Yeah. I, I, I was once in, in Prague and um, sitting at a, in a conference table and these people are talking in languages I don't know. And, and I'm asking them, what are you speaking? And this one says, well, the Czech one is saying, well, I'm speaking Czech in the Slovak guy understands me, and the Slovak one says, "Well, the Czech one understands me, but they don't understand Polish, and I understand Polish." That's true, and it's it, and it's crazy. I mean, I, I I was once in in the only time I was in Sweden actually was for a few minutes, and I'm half Swedish by the way. My mother was Swedish, but I don't know any Swedish. And and these two guys are talking, and I know one's from Denmark, and I said, "What's the what are you speaking?" And he says, "Well, he's speaking Swedish, I'm speaking Danish." But what I said, "What's the difference?" I said, "Well, it's mostly spelling," and I thought. We have nothing like that, that situation <laughs> over here. Um, and I, but I want to, I want to get a little bit into the, um, you know, where um, SUSE is, uh, is used and by whom. But first, I want to let everybody know um, uh, that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Collide. Uh, you know, the old saying, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, the traditional approach to device security is that hammer, a, a blunt instrument that can't solve nuanced problems. Even after installing clunky agents that users hate, IT teams still have to deal with mountains of support tickets over the same old issues. And they have no way to address things like unencrypted SSH keys, OS updates, or pretty much anything that goes on with a Linux device. Collide is an endpoint security solution. It's more like a Swiss army knife. It gives IT teams, a single dashboard for all devices, Mac, Windows, and even Linux. You can query your entire fleet to check for common compliance issues or write your own custom checks. Plus, instead of opening intrusive software that creates more work for IT, Collide's lightweight agent shows end users how to fix issues themselves. You can achieve endpoint compliance by adding a new tool to your toolbox. Visit Collide.com slash floss to find out how that's K O L I D E dot com slash floss. So, so I, I want to ask is what is the geographic distribution of usage of, of SUSE in general? 
and also um, the, any difference with OpenSUSE and also I'm thinking within, I've always seen SUSE as an enterprise play, as it were. I think it became more so after the eight Novell. Um, I was, I had a lot of involvements with Novell at that time, as well as covering uh, SUSE for Linux Journal um, back in my old day job. Um, so I'm wondering what, what, how does it look now? I always thought it's kind of a Euro company, but I don't know if it is anymore. So, so I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll at least uh, make some clarity points there. Like, so basically, um, I mean, we work for SUSE, but specifically, like I, I would just be talking about open SUSE. Um, and Same I can here. give you a demographic breakdown of, of sort of like, uh, number one is us. Number two is Germany. Number three is, um, uh, Brazil and number four is China and five is Russia. Uh, as far as the leading sort of um, countries that we have on the, at least our Matamo uh, used to be uh, called Piwik. But um, for the most part, uh, you know, I mean, granted, if you look at the the map, it's, it's used all over the world, really. Um, a, a lot of use in, uh, we have a big community in Indonesia. And then, of course, we have a, a lot of people just spread out throughout Europe. But um, that's... I think I answered. Does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah, I know it does. I mean, you're, you're clearly, I mean, it, Linux itself and open source and pretty much everything in the open source world is international or non-national, I think is a better way to put it. It's interesting to break it down. Um, and I imagine you're dealing with many languages as well, probably more than some other distributions are. A question there is actually, do you think of it as a, a distribution anymore? Is that still a relevant distinction well open really is uh it has distributions under its umbrella because it's really um a project filled with uh distributions tools and of course community so that's kind of how i would explain it at least we also have a lot of tools which actually generate the distribution. We have projects actually that serve for translating of the software, which is not necessarily part of the distribution, right? It's it's uh, it's actually above it. So definitely not just distro. One of the one of the big things that I've been aware of from OpenSUSE for a long time is the OpenSUSE Build Service, which the acronym there OBS means something different to a, a lot of us. <laughs> OBS but, Studio. Uh, Yes, um, I guess I guess the studio there is the differentiator. Uh, but goodness, it's it's not very uncommon at all. You see quite a, quite often um, a a package. You know, you you go to look up some piece of software, and they'll have a link. Here's where you can get our binaries from the OpenSUSE build service. And that's if I if I remember correctly, that is not just SUSE. And you know, of course, being RPMs, it'll probably work on Fedora and CentOS as well. But you guys, if, if if I remember correctly, you have Debian builds and all kinds of builds that that thing spits out. And a lot of people use it, right? Yes, that's true. Uh, can I yeah. speak about it, Tech? Uh, yeah. So it, it's actually really like uh, even when we are trying to do partnership, I mean, as far as OpenSUSE goes with other companies, recently Cisco on the OpenH264, just like Fedora did it before, um, using OBS was one of the selling points uh, because uh, they actually have to provide binaries to Debian, to Fedora, and to us as well. And building it in a single place and have like maybe easy pipeline where to actually get the data from and, and just put it on their servers. Like OBS does the job for all of the distros, right? So yeah, you can even build like binaries for Windows. Um, we are building Apex WSL uh, through cross compilation, right? With BGW. So you can do that as well. Yeah, very cool. Um, and how does that tie in with OpenQA? I am much less familiar with OpenQA, but I'm seeing it here on a link on the same page. And it sounds neat, but I don't know much of anything about it. Vacuum me. Go ahead. Okay, well, I I am coming from Red Hat. Like, that was my previous employer. And I can tell you that the OpenQA is probably one of the reasons why we can have, like, that many times less employees and still, like, de deliver an amazing job. Right, because if if it wouldn't be open QA, like uh, I can't imagine like how we would test all the software. So um, basically, how it works is it's a it's a infrastructure I would say uh, where you can actually test any arbitrary software. You have really powerful tools. You can write like script logic in Perl, and you can use image comparison to actually compare uh, what you are getting with expected results. 
So you can test anything from like remote desktop uh, to, I don't know, Windows installation. Stuff is running in VM and you can really say, do this and then check if the expected output actually matches, you know, what we would like to. And uh, it's awesome. Like before any change, change gets to distribution, we run like thousands of tests uh, before it gets in. And then before we publish it to the users, additional tons of uh, tons of tests are executed. And uh, it's really it's really awesome. Um, back in Red Hat, I was actually trying to test Spice, uh, which was, you know, it's remote desktop. And I was actually looking for something that could you know, work with the canvas on the client. And there was no real test framework that we use image comparison. And this would have saved me a lot of, lot of time. So. It, it was a, it was a project that was yeah. started off um, from hack week, actually. We have had a few very successful uh, projects yeah. started out from hack week, uh, micro S web late, one, uh, web late. Yeah. For example. Um, and, and so it, it really has uh taken on a life of its own. Uh, the first, the only reason Fedora started using it was really like uh, one of one of the guys we work with, like wrote a test for Fedora and found a bug. And, and then like, you know, it just, it, it just took one initiative to start. And then, um, you know, there's other distributions that use it as well. It's, it's very useful. Fedora. And, yeah. Fedora. Um, you have KDE that uses it. You have Cuba, um, Qubits OS that uses it. Uh, we actually have a, a few pages on the wiki, uh, our wiki that describes the other people that are, you know, participating or at least using it. And, and then there's there's just that shadow usage that we randomly find out about here and there. Yeah. So we've we've talked about uh, Fedora and talked about Red Hat stuff. I'm I'm real curious what the story is with RPM. And how both the OpaSUSE world and the Red Hat world both use the same package manager, and uh, I'm I'm guessing there's a story there about not having the not invented here syndrome, but I've never actually heard it. Do you guys know the story of that? That's way uh, you know back to the history. <laughs> I joined SUSE like four years ago. <laughs> okay, I, I know this story happened, but I wasn't with the I wasn't with the company then. But uh, so what, I should would know. Are are either of you do, uh, involved with the ongoing RPM development? Because there there's some interesting things coming down the pike for RPM itself. So I have to oversee basically any package any package change coming to the distribution. I'm not really focusing on one or the other package. For me, it would be probably like distribution images and other stuff. Mm. That's that's more relevant to to what I would be doing. All right. So the the big change that I see, and uh, this this is caught my eyes because I'm talking to you guys, because when you go into the RPM source, um, you can see the, of course, their pull requests and you get to see who it is right. that's writing the code. And uh, RPM just had added to it support for microarchitectures. So, you know, the, the different players in the industry have put their heads together right. and said, okay, these are the processor features that make an x86-64 V2. These are the processor features that make an x86-64 V3. You know, and it's things like support for um, MMX and uh, AVX 512 is one of the things for V4, actually. Um, RPM now has the ability to differentiate between those and, from what I understand, deliver, you know, the highest version number to your install that your machine supports. And that that seems pretty interesting. But the guys that wrote the patches... Uh, have the OpenSUSE badge that they they work for OpenSUSE. So is is this a feature that's coming to one of the OpenSUSE distros? So should I cover that deck or absolutely? You know a lot more about it. I can add a little bit, but yeah, I can I can give you like the background. I'm not sure about the usage of that particular feature, uh, okay. but I can tell you I can summarize like what we've had as an issue and what we came up with as a solution. So. Uh, there was that amazing idea for our next generation product portfolio that we would get the most out of the current CPUs, right? Well, second most, we wouldn't go for V4, but uh, the idea was say, let's go for V3, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that was basically, uh, that was communicated to community and then there was a huge amount of pushback, right? Because you have to support <laughs> communities. That's Haswell and your machine. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, Haswell and your. Actually, everything that I have on the desk uh, would, would be running it. 
but uh, you can imagine the pushback, right? Mm-hmm. And then we were actually looking into, okay, so so what are the alternatives? How can we still deliver like the most that we can, right? But like supporting as much hardware as we can. And, uh, and we've considered V2 uh, as the base level, basically, um, to actually support something in Europe, but that would still cost us some of the hardware, right? And there was still a pushback. And then in the end, we've actually decided to stay on the, well, at least as far as Tumbleweed goes, open Suze. Uh, not, not necessarily Suze's new products, but Tumbleweed goes, we've decided to keep the current base architecture level, get rid of the 32-bit uh, Intel, like uh, the i386, i586 from the main distribution, make it, we call it ports, secondary architecture. So it's built separately, doesn't block builds uh, for the primary architectures, which is ARM and Intel. And uh, we actually decided to go for uh, for HVCAPS, uh, which is basically building that particle library, right, with the optimization while leaving the uh, basically rest of the packages and distribution intact. Uh, intact uh, and we could maybe even offer the HVCAPS for V4. So this is the direction where we decided to go for with Tumbleweed. For Alp, I'm not sure. I think that the last news that I've heard was that it will be V2 by default. Um, um, may change. Uh, we are still in the prototype phase, right? Uh, we went from V3 to V2. Now Tumbleweed is going for basically V0 plus HV caps. Um, so I can imagine how the HV caps actually is one of the reasons uh, why actually we want the feature in, right? So you can actually we can deliver the latest one, maybe for V4. In, in my case, for example, here. Yeah, but that, it was it was very spicy topic. You can imagine the pushback <laughs> on the mailing lists. Hey, what about my hardware, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've I've got a pair of servers down in a data center in Dallas, and with the latest um, release of CentOS Rocky, all of all of Red Hat stuff, one of the servers now will not run the latest Rel binaries because it's just old it's enough. It's an AMD, and it's V2, just right? it's still. Yeah, I think it's V2, so it doesn't support. It doesn't quite support V2, and I discovered that the hard way. <laughs> Went to migrate a VM over to it, and the VM just stopped. <laughs> you start start digging into it. It's like, oh, that's a pain because it's still good hardware. Yeah. So I can imagine people being frustrated over that. <laughs> it's one of the differences that I see. We did really actually took it the hard way, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. announce the proposal and then then actually take all the input, and that was it was painful, but. I think that we did the best possible, um, how would you call it, compromise to actually deliver what's asked and still make people happy. Yeah, there was a there was a good hundred and fifty comments on that on the mailing list. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, was yeah. it was constant. It was like back and forth, and people actually showing data. You are not going to get as much as you believe, and so on and so on. Yeah, you only got a hundred and fifty angry comments. That's rookie numbers. <laughs> <laughs> But we are talking about like core contributor group, right? We are not talking Reddit. We are actually <laughs> literally talking the internal, well, internal mailing list of the closed, you know, closed community. Oh, okay, okay. 150 angry comments from your actual developers. Okay, that's quite a few. Yes, <laughs> which is pretty much maybe a little bit more than that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm curious, and it seems it seems on topic since we're talking about architectures. Um, what mm-hmm. what about some of the other less mainstream, maybe soon to be mainstream architectures? Um, is Risk there five. a Risk Five um, distro sure. or a, a install for any of the OpenSUSE products? Um, and then what about some of the others like Power and oh, Lord help you if you have to, but MIPS and some of those things. Uh, I can talk you me. Yeah. It's up to you. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, go ahead. I, <laughs> Okay, so, I mean, RISC-V so, is going along, but, you know, go ahead. Yeah, so I believe that actually that that was uh, considered to be one of the primary architectures for up later in the release, uh, well, maybe in one of the newer versions, not in the initial release, but it's definitely on the radar, right? Uh, in OBSV, you can already build for RISC-V. Uh, I know that universities are actually quite happy for it. I've seen several, I have even one of the RISC-V uh, stickers for my laptop because some people were really just happy with what they can do in OBS. And that makes me happy that universities actually use OBS for this reason. Yes. Uh, SLES, so SLES is actually built for uh, Intel, you know, uh, Power S390, ARM, and Leap actually took it a little bit further because we want to, again, uh, support some of the community hardware. So we are even supporting 32-bit ARM, which is not, which is not supported on SLES. 
and we are still supporting S390 and everything in Leap. So that's it. It, it was an effort. Uh, we actually had to decouple it from the main distribution because we were not able to get ARM v7 spinning as fast as the rest of the arches, for example. So it was quite pain. But again, we were listening to users. We wanted to make sure that we do not let anybody down. And it cost us quite a lot of effort. Uh, Risk five is on the radar, but it's not part of any basically mainline distribution. Uh, but you can still build in OBS for for Risk five. But I would it, say the changes with hardware, right? Once we will have decent builders for decent prices, like you, you know, it's going to be much better. Right. So that that was what I was just going to say. One of the yeah. one of the problems with doing Risk five at this point as, as a distro is there's just not hardware out there for it yet. Um, there, there's a few places that are making it and the prices are starting to come down. In fact, I should have my first risk five board showing up later today. And I'm actually pretty excited to go start playing with that. Um, it's one of the, uh, vision five Mark twos and they finally shipped it after the Kickstarter. Um, I don't remember what distro they've put together with that. Um, it's one that it's, it's not, it's not Fedora. So I'm going (laughs) to, it's going to be outside my comfort zone. I know Um, this star five actually is works quite a bit with some people. Uh, within mm-hmm. OpenSUSE. And so, I mean, it could very well be, I mean, we're in communication with them constantly. Sure. So. Yeah, that's that's neat. It's it's fun to see kind of the, the Linux world, the open source world, as we have started to embrace this new ISA, this new platform. And uh, I think there will be some, some real fun things come out of that uh, and some of the other platforms that are out there. Um, it's just It's just good to see everything moving forwards that way. I'm really looking for anything from Pine64 with Risk Five, other than Pinecell, which you know you can't really run fully fledged distro on it. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, um, Pine64. I think at one point Arduino was talking about putting something out that was Risk Five too, and I don't remember if that ever happened. Um, but we'll we will really know that we've made it when the Raspberry Pi Foundation puts out something that's Risk Five. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to cut in here and uh, and pivot to another topic, but I'm going to tease that and for now say that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Barracuda. In a recent email trend survey, 43% of respondents said they had been victims of a spear phishing attack, but only 23% said that they have dedicated spear phishing protection. How are you keeping your emails secure? Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. Phishing, conversation hacking, ransomware, plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Are you protected against all 13 types? Email cybercrime is becoming more sophisticated and attacks are more difficult to prevent. Attacks use social engineering, including urgency and fear to prey on victims. Social engineering attacks, including spear phishing and Business email compromise cost businesses an average of $130,000 per incident. As demand for COVID-19 tests increased at the start of 2022, Barracuda researchers saw an increase in COVID-19 test-related phishing attacks increased by 521% between October and January. As public interest rises, for example, in cryptocurrency, the opportunity for attacks becomes ripe. As the price of Bitcoin increased by almost 400% between October 2020 and April 2021, Barracuda research also found that impersonation attacks grew 192% in the same period. In 2020, the Internet Crime Complaint Center, the IC3, received 19,369 business email compromise, that's BEC, email account compromise, that's EAC, complaints with adjusted losses of over $1.8 billion. Securing email at the gateway level is not enough anymore. It's still important to leverage gateway security to protect against traditional attacks, such as viruses, zero-day ransomware, spam, and other threats. But your gateway is defenseless against targeted attacks. Protection at the inbox level, including AI and machine learning, is necessary to detect and stop the most sophisticated threats. Get a free copy of the Barracuda Report, 13 email threat types to know about right now, and you'll see how the cyber criminals are getting more and more sophisticated every day and how you can build the best protection for your business, data, and people with Barracuda. Find out 
about the 13 email threat types you need to know about and how Barracuda can provide complete email protection for your teams, your customers, and your reputation. Get your free ebook at barracuda.com slash twit. That's barracuda.com slash twit. Barracuda, your journey secured. Okay, so I wanted to ask, I have to go to a different, yeah. Okay, so an interesting thing to me is that, and I mentioned earlier the Novell acquisition, and I, I said that, that uh, Susan acquired Novell. It's actually the other way around, and the history there is kind of wild. Um, and actually, Linux Journal was a Sousa house for some of its early years when we were still in Seattle, um, and we were Debian house for we moved around. But Sousa was a favorite of ours. And then there's this Novell acquisition, and then if I look through Wikipedia, that was a a novel was acquired by attachment attachment like Microfocus. went with microfocus international that was acquired by open attic and then there was an acquisition of hpe OpenStack and staccato um and H, hpe was hewlett, hewlett packard enterprise um then there was a sale to eqt partners and then there was an acquisition by rancher labs i didn't actually know about all this i didn't pay any attention to it <laughs> but all these things happened and there was an an ipo um uh, yeah. and, and then there was this acquisition by new vector. And the interesting off, thing to me is that knife. it's, it's a half billion dollar company. <laughs> is, and it, it has survived as an identity through all of those things. I mean, who remember, who remembers Novell anymore? Who remembers attachment or half of those things that were way back when, um, I, I, I lived, uh, quite through most of that, except the Novell. <laughs> acquisition. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's interesting to me that, that, um, I mean, the only thing I notice is that it went from having the lowercase U to the uppercase U. <laughs> like, nobody bothered to explain that anymore, you know, and the, and the gecko is still there. Right. You know, so it's like, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting to live through all that. And, and yet it's sort of like the buoyancy of the identity that is Sousa has stayed at the top of that. <laughs> so I, to tell me a little bit about living through all that or what that actually means. It may mean nothing really. I don't know. But to me, it's, it's the durability of a brand, as it were, to look at it in marketing terms. I leave it to Dak. For me, it was peaceful. I joined basically under a micro focus. <laughs> Therefore, only one, <laughs> one acquisition by equity. Yeah. <laughs> so... Interesting enough, I live with an well. I I live next to another American, like who started out with Sousa. Like I think he was like employee number fifty or something, something like that. You know, and he lived through a lot of that. He actually went to Canonical, came back. Um, but I I got a lot of stories from him, and um, I mean, it really is. Yeah, I mean, it started out as a as a basically doing translations, doing documentation. Um, and that's kind of where it grew from and it has been resistant. And I guess, you know, with a good product, you just can't kill it. Right. Um, it just keeps having, keeps going on. And, and, um, you know, the, the whole Novell thing happened. Uh, I, I heard stories, you know, that, 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 uh, that they flew in here and, um, and of course they, they came to Nuremberg and, um, it was, it was rather, um, what was it? It, it was kind of like at a prime point where they really needed to sell. And then I think the rest from that point on, it was sort of like, um, it, it was just pure margins. I think is kind of how like they ended up getting purchased. Uh, that was the whole attach mate and then moving on to micro focus, you know, and just, they became like sectioned off as, as business, um, business units and, and including up to the point where when we were with um, uh, micro focus, like, Novell was made a business unit um, and was also, uh, so was um, Attachmate. So, uh, but the acquisitions that kind of went from there were, um, well, what was it? Um, the EQT, I mean, that was more of a, we became like, how did that work? Um, I guess uh, the fund. Right. We were uh, we were a yep. fund. We were part of a uh, think of a mutual fund, and we were fund number eight, as far as I remember. Um, and yeah. and then, uh, of course, you know, n new leadership kind of came in, and then uh, and then they went to the uh, 
as soon as it was uh, floated uh, around on the stock market from what I could tell and uh, and then landed on the Frankfurt Exchange. Mm-hmm. So, but it was, it, it's, we had uh, the founders, actually one of the founders still works for the company. Um, yep. And you would go outside and hang out with him. It's just a, it's a very unique company. I'll just say that. Yeah. So <laughs> I write for Hackaday and I've been there for a couple of years now and we've kind of gone through the same thing, been, been sold and bought a couple of times. And, uh, you know, we're now under Siemens technically. And mm. that was a little nerve wracking when that happened, but we've kind of got the same thing going on. It's enough of a brand and we do well enough that they've just left us alone, which has been really nice, but it's, it does, it speaks well to what open Sousa is and is all about. Uh, that even the corporate overlords are just like let's let's not mess with the geeks. Let the, let's let them do their thing. They're doing good work there. We need to let them do it. <laughs> That's true. By the way, maybe one correction uh, because Doug actually mentioned it. He mentioned Neuvector and he mentioned Rancher. That were actually done acquisitions by Suze, right? Not that they would purchase us just to correct it. All right. Well, I want to yeah. dig into, unless Doc has another follow-up. No, no, no. If Doc go has for a follow-up. It. He's the boss. All right. Uh, yeah. I want to dig into Tumbleweed because I'm not very familiar with Tumbleweed. And it reminds oh, me a true. lot of Rawhide over on the Fedora side. And Rawhide <laughs> eats babies. And I don't think Tumbleweed <laughs> yeah. is supposed to eat babies, is it? <laughs> it's not. Uh, the difference is open QA, really. Like, I feel like that's the main difference, ah. right? Rawhide is Rawhide, basically. You build it. It's there. You can consume it. Here, we actually have gatekeeping, right? So as I've mentioned uh, before, anything actually gets accepted in factory. There is uh, several reviews, one, you know, in development projects. So actually group around the packages, like see Python developers, they have to be okay with the change. Then we kind of submit it uh, for factory. Let's try to include it in Tumbleweed. Uh, factory is sort of our, it's Tumbleweed that was, that yet didn't pass testing. Let's call it this way. Okay. So it's, it's before. The, it's the beta branch of Tumbleweed. Uh, no, it's, it's the same. Uh, let's say, and it, Whatever passes testing from factory actually ends up in Tumbleweed. Okay. Factory would be like the development project below Tumbleweed. Uh, cool. So I would say that's the main difference really. Like you should probably compare Rawhide more to factory, but like Mm -hmm. Tumbleweed is actually distribution that went through the changes that are actually not identified as breaking our system made it in. And it's, it's thousands and thousands of tests being executed on top of each. So that's the main difference, right? Sure. Uh, so, it, so Tumbleweed actually started out, um, Greg Cage is one of the kernel developers and he used to work for SUSE and he actually came up with the idea of Tumbleweed where he, um, he basically was trying to, you know, put it in the latest kernel. And I mean, he, he had his ideas that it was supposed to be like a rolling kernel. And then ultimately what we, what we've yeah. determined, like he, he, he went on to, Work for the Linux Foundation, and we actually asked him if we could retake that name because we figured out that to be able to move one thing, like to move one thing, you have to be able to move everything, and that is kind of like yes. really where Tumbleweed has um, really excelled because we we figured out that process, we figured out how to make that happen, and then with OpenQA being sort of a, yeah. I guess a inhibitor or something it, it, it's basically what allows us to to roll as quickly as we can and i think we had a recently had a streak of i don't know we must have gone on like 70 straight snapshots or something like that so yeah so i, I was gonna ask think, how close how bleeding edge tumbleweed is but you guys have kind of done, have dove in you dived you've dived into that a little bit um but i mean is so like let's just say let's just take the kernel uh, what generally is that lag time between, you know, Torvalds and Greg say, all right, this kernel is out, uh, it's released, so we're going to get another one, what, in a week and a half. Uh, how long does it take for that that minted kernel to show up in Tumbleweed? Um, so I, I do a lot of the coverage. So does it testing, right? Yeah. Go for it, sorry. It, it, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm i the one that tends to write all the, I don't know, weekly blogs on, on Tumbleweed, and, um, and you see it kind of come in, but... Uh, my experiences over the years, you, it depends like how, I mean, obviously it's going to vary in where Linus might be on the, um, you know, on, on the RC. Um, and then like, as he transfers on, let's say he works on a, on a new 
a major version or something like that. Like that might be something that might cause some uh, bit of lag time between um, say him passing it off to Greg or, or any of the other kernel developers. But, but I would say I've seen it where the RC kind of gets released and it comes right into tumbleweed within like 24 hours. So it's, it's it really depends though it could take like a week not much more though than a week though you, don't, you oh, rarely it, see that is tumbleweed Keep run in rc kernels as opposed to waiting waiting for the official release of them it well people release i suppose you you have varying um you have varying you have varying lts kernels and you have varying rc kernels and i actually I'd, have, I'd really have to go to the to the website to see but linus usually touches that very top and then kind of passes it along at least from what right. i've seen um and so when he gets it to a point where he's fine then you know there's still some rcs but like it's it's not a it's not it's not considered stable you know by any means right, right. but okay. it functions cool. in, in also keep in mind that um, there could be a big of like also caused by other packages, right? Sometimes we can produce, I don't know, seven builds in a week or seven builds as in we have a new distribution build that we publish to users. And sometimes we may do just one a week because there is just some ongoing issue that we have to resolve, right? Like maybe uh, issues with, I don't know, latest GLC update or so on. And therefore there could be delayed, not caused by that maintainer wasn't quick enough, but you know, some overall situation of what's incoming, what are the incoming changes to the distro right now at the moment? That could add a few days, for example. Uh, so I assume Tumbleweed is, because it's so up-to-date, it's got all of the new desktop toys. So you, uh, you, can, run, you can run Wayland, you can run um, Pipewire, it's got the WireGuard packages. All, all of that stuff is there if somebody wants a really up-to-date yeah. desktop. Yes, correct, huh? Also, uh, we have a very nice road that basically anything that ends up in any SUSE product or Leap, for example, as well, which is sort of open SUSE project, right, has to go to Tumbleweed first. We call it factory, right, as, as, as opposed to the development project, but that's the rule. So you know that there will be all, all the features that will have made their products and nice because you know that everything will go eventually upstream. And, and what what does happen though? You'll you'll see like for example KDE uh, Jonathan Riddle, oh. um, you know he, he, we were at Academy one year and of course he came up. He said, you know, I really appreciate uh, you guys with OpenQA because like we're able to catch some things and then pass along to upstream. Like, um, so I mean, right. if, if they have their tests built for OpenQA, then it just allows their release to to be tested. Um, more quickly and, and get that uh, new release out the door. And and we do, and occasionally you do see some RCs enter into Tumbleweed. Um, but by that time, it's usually like RC2 or RC3. And then, you know, next thing you know, you have the new major version or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I want to jump into um, something about trade shows because I know you guys just came from one and, uh, and we just had a, uh, Ilyan Rabinovich from Scale on last week, and it's a big important part of the of the whole thing. But first, I have to let everybody know that joining Club Twit is another great way to support our network. As a member, you'll get access to ad free versions of all the shows on Twit, as well as other great benefits. There's a bonus Twit Plus feed, which includes footage and discussions that didn't make the final show edit, as well as bonus shows we've started, such as Hands on Mac, Hands on Windows. Ask me anything in fireside chats with some of your favorite Twit guests and co-hosts. As Floss Weekly listeners, you may also be interested in checking out another Club Twit exclusive show, the Untitled Linux Show, hosted by our own Jonathan Bennett. So sign up to join Club Twit for just $7 a month. Head over to twit.tv slash club twit and join today. So you guys just came from FOSDEM, and I, I mentioned we had scale on. What... How, First, what'd you get there, and um, uh, and how important are trade shows in general now? Because they've gone through a lot of changes over the years in the whole ecosystem. Where do they fit? So, so yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and start that. Um, Lubash and I did have a, a shot of. Well, we I'll, I'll leave that another time. We had we of course we had some beers, um, but <laughs> but um, 
It's um, so Fosdem is quite different, uh, and it's not necessarily a trade show. It's it's just it's the biggest um, open source event, at least that I've ever been to or ever seen, um, and it's all community driven. So you're not going to have any companies there or anything like that. It's all projects, projects, um, and uh, people that have released uh, projects under you know the various license open source licenses that are there. Um, it is important to be there because that's where a lot of important uh, conversations take place. A lot of development uh, takes place there and you'll see a lot of bugs get patched or just, well, even ideas expanded upon. Um, and then if you look at uh, the events that surround that, I mean, you can have, sorry, you can have um, companies that sponsor it, but they don't, they're not going to have a table there. You know, I mean, CentOS will be there, but that's not going to be Red Hat there, right? Uh, OpenSUSE is going to be there. It's not going to be SUSE. Um, uh, but anyway, the uh, you'll have like Google Summer of Code. They'll have some sort of meetup that takes place there. You'll have trainings that happen along the way. Um, there's also a very good... Um, configuration management camp happens um, a couple of days afterward. So, so I mean, Brussels during this time, roughly around the time of the Super Bowl, is just the place that you want to be if you're an open source developer um, to see as many talks as you can, get um, get on the latest, uh, get the latest knowledge about what's changing within projects or what direction they're heading in. Um, and then going back to scale, um, you know, Elon, uh, great. Great person. I, I really appreciate scale. We have a good community in Los Angeles there or Southern California um, that, that helps with the booth. Um, I've been there several times and I really do enjoy it when I do get back home um, and hanging with them. But unfortunately, I won't be able to be there this year. Yeah, I'm not going to be there this time. It, 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 it's it's an un... <laughs> I'm going to break my record for not being there every time. I think <laughs> next year I'll make it though. There's always something coming up and I'm, I live in Southern California much of the time. Um, yeah. So Jonathan, were you, did you have something there? I, I'm not sure oh, if you did or not. If not, I'll go uh, so time. I've got, a, I've got a couple of other things I wanted yeah. to ask about, but first off, what is, what is adaptable Linux? Uh, I've seen that kind of platform. as a, uh, the, yeah, the adaptable Linux platform. What, what is that about? Me or you, Dak? It's, it's me, right? That's all you, yeah. <laughs> I, it's I all guess you. It's, uh, so right now it's a platform, right? It's it's something that uh, SUSE experiments with. Uh, it's currently still in the prototype phase. We, I think that we had already. We are going to have third prototype probably within a month or similar, maybe maybe two. And uh, I guess like to people who are sort of familiar with OpenSUSE. I would say it's a way of productizing the concept that was developed with microOS, right? That's the immutable distribution, the third one, you know, most installed out of whatever OpenSUSE project offers. And uh, it's basically, uh, we already had uh, similar experiments or, or even successful projects called Slim Micro, which is basically very small host. It's really focused to be container and VM host, right? It's immutable, so you, you are using transactional updates. You are always updating the BTRFS snapshot, and I guess ALP is basically a re code code stream refresh of SLES, right? But using the concept and the way how distribution looks like that that's sort of adopted from microOS, because as you know, SLES fifteen is aging, right? For enterprises, that may be a good thing. We are we are providing support for next I don't know fifteen twenty years, but there are needs to actually have updated stream like NeuroPython, NeuroRuby. Um, and the Alp is basically take on that, but done a little bit differently. I think it's it's quite actually brave, uh, you know, to be innovative in this. Uh, and uh, the differences are, you know, if, if I can maybe mention, like, what's the plan for desktop, at least based on the current prototype state, like, we, we would like to run, like, containerized GDM and including the GNOME session in the container on top of Alp, right? So um, that's basically separating the base OS from, from any sort of workloads, be it desktop, be it some container, runtime, be it VMs that are running on top of. And uh, there are fundamental differences such as, yes, you all know it, right? It's the famous tool from, from distro. People like to use it. It's simple. And even that, if you trigger Yast from command line, it's actually a spawning container on the background. And therefore, you know, you are actually really 
you are sort of erasing that level from the user. He doesn't even know that it's containerized, but it is. So it's it's quite quite cool concept. Uh, and you know we are still early. Uh, some stuff may change, but uh, I think it's it's something to really definitely watch if you are interested in in that era of immutable distributions. Could be Silver, Blue, and Fedora sort of. They just have different take on it through OS3, right? We are using ButterFS. We are actually relying on snapshots from it. So it's really tight. You cannot really use our immutable systems with like Ext or any other file system than ButterFS. Mainly, I would say, uh, if you would ask who should be using it, it's really uh, people who are going to run VMs, containerized uh, workflows, and so on. Uh, but we also plan to have desktop there, right? Just like MicroS, they have desktop as well. Microsoft's desktop is utilizing Fatpacks, which is also quite new, I would say, for most of the mainstream distributions. But by default, right? You install it and you have Fatpacks there. And so I, I believe. <laughs> yeah, I I have a, and we talked about this a little bit before the show, but I'd like to bring sure. the, the audience in on this too. Today's an interesting day um, because Microsoft, which... Uh, was very involved in ChatGPT and oh. and OpenAI. Um, uh, basically, integrated OpenAI, I mean, ChatGPT with Bing, its search engine. Um, they want you to ask it questions, not make, not make search queries so much. And at the same time, Google's competing. They have something called Bard, I think, and and they're kind of leaning in the same direction. Of the user interface doesn't look any different yet. Um, you ask it a question, you're going to get very kind of ChatGPT kind of answers. And I think given the degree to which search engines are our window into the web, that this changes the web itself. And, and what, I'm, what worries me and the, and the open source angle to this is hmm. um, we don't know what's going on inside these machines. We had some idea of what was going on with the search engine. They index the entire web. They have something like PageRank that, that, that ranks results and so forth. That has changed a lot over the years. But our experience of it is kind of like going to a library and looking through the stacks and you look through the card catalog and you find something there, but you go to original things, you're not getting an answer. You're getting, you're getting connections to the actual sources and the sources seem farther away. And this is an open source show. So I'm wondering what the connections there might be, or if you guys have thought much about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, as we kind of were discussing earlier, like you have to, it has to be verifiable, right? Like, you can you can be given information, but you really need to to check it out to make sure that it's correct. I mean, I think some of us that have spouses might uh, might know that. Um, <laughs> like they half trust and verify. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but yeah. So I think it is rather important um, that, that that remains because once that if that if you're consuming closed sources, right. Um, in a sense like this with the, with the AI, I mean, who knows where that world's going to go. Um, it, it, it sounds pretty dangerous and probably, uh, I'm sure that we can make a new movie about that. <laughs> I, I kind of see what Bing is doing in particular as instead of looking through the card stacks, the card catalog, you're now asking the librarian. And the nice thing is so far, they still give you the option of going and saying, hey, librarian, show me the book where you got that answer. Um, but one of the things we were talking about before the show is if that ever gets taken away, you're potentially in a really bad place because you then have to trust the librarian. And, you know, with, with the AI things going on right now, there's some real interesting things going on with that. Uh, the, the, the fun folks over at Reddit, for example, with the actual chat GPT program have figured out a way to jailbreak it. And it, it, there's a, there is a prompt you can give chat GPT to say, essentially, I want you to pretend that you're a different character and give me answers without using any of your pre-programmed rules. And so you can then get ChatGPT to actually speak off the record, as it were, and give you the real answers, which is just mind-blowing. With there, profanities and everything, right? It's <laughs> yes, yes, all of that. Um, but there's some, there's some other interesting angles for open source, and I think particularly of what GitHub is doing with Copilot, and Pilot. some of the questions around that. And I think, hasn't OpenSUSE just yep. just brought out some uh, guidance on that? Yes, we, not OpenSUSE, but SUSE in general. And okay. uh, I would say just like with maybe news documentation, and if you are actually like 
using it as learning material for whatever the bot is going to tell you, you have to, you know, you need to make sure that the license of maybe the article or the documentation that it's actually using is still being respected, right? Let's say that somebody uh, uses Creative Commons and they want attribution and the bot actually doesn't do that, right? He gives you inter uh, information from some article which and then breaks the attribution aspect of it. And we have the same issue with code, right? We have to make sure that the uh, that the AI is actually really respecting the licenses and copyrights from the training material. And with Copilot, uh, you know, there were some causes where that wasn't the case, right? So SUSE actually, for now, for we are refreshing the policy, which is sort of providing guidance to our employees and also, you know, maybe partners if they want to use it, is saying that we shouldn't use it at the moment, uh, not until the next revision. Maybe we will have new solutions that are popping, like AWS is coming with something as well, right? I believe it's called Code Whisperer. Maybe that could be a good candidate, uh, but for now, time being, until probably next review in December, like it, we are actually telling employees not to use any of that code, you know, in any of our products. Period. Well, guys, we are actually at the we're out of time here. Usually, I give a little yeah. warning, but we're running out of time. We actually are out sure. of time. Um, but we always end with uh, a, a couple of simple questions for both of you, so we'll take a little more time. What are your favorite text editor and scripting language? <laughs> Doug, you want to start on me? Uh, I'm Markdown. Markdown and um, <laughs> Gedit. So I'm a GNOME yeah. user, but that would that would be mine. <laughs> like SUSE is very specific. Like you, like OBS is probably done out of you know five different languages, right? So if you want to contribute to such project, like you, it will give you a hard time. But for me, it would be I really used to love Sublime Text. If you if you if you know the editor, uh, closest like free alternative would be Atom, but otherwise Vim, right? Anywhere where I have Terminal Console, it it would be Vim all the way, and uh, language probably Python. Well, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so th this has been great and an, an awesome progress report. I'm really glad we got it. And we're going to have to have one or both of you guys back again to tell us what it's, what's gone down in the next six months, year, or whatever it takes, because it's not going to stop. It's a lot of, lot of great responses to questions here. So thanks a lot, guys. Thank you for having thanks us. In, I hope. Thank you. So Jonathan, you have some great questions there. I got to say, it it kind of helps that Linux is my thing, and they mainly do <laughs> Linux distros. I, I, I'm kind of inside baseball on that one, um, but that was that was great. It was a lot of fun to talk to them, and uh, hopefully we didn't. Hopefully we hit the the right level of nerding out because we did a little bit, um, but not too much for our audience. <laughs> yeah, I I'm I'm half Muggle, <laughs> or probably more than half Muggle, but I'm just a, a bit of wizard. So does your I, I'm curious that your your server in the rack or somewhere wherever it is in 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 Dallas did that survive? I mean, uh, whatever you yes. had to do with that. Yeah. So. It is running the previous version of uh, of CentOS of Rocky Linux now, and uh, I've got my individual VMs set to. Uh, they're all running the previous version too. Uh, that way, I can migrate them back and forth. That's the whole point of having the two machines to be able to do live migrations to reboot one for security issues or what have you. Um, so yeah, for now it's it's hanging on, but I will eventually have to come up with something, either replace some hardware or move to a different distro, which it sounds like a huge pain. <laughs> So that is hardware in a in a rack in 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 a place a physical yes. thing that you would pay yes. attention to. Yeah, um, I'm just paranoid enough that I don't want to do everything on the cloud because the cloud is just somebody else's hardware. Yeah, man, and i i i made I made the move from a rack space rack to a rack space cloud, and I'm paying for it. I got to say, so. That's, how long? Uh, how long has those emails been missing now? <laughs> uh, since uh, December fifth. Since Oof, December. Now that's... I haven't. To be fair, I haven't called them up because I wanted to wait until the dust settled, and I'm still paying them, so I, I should get some good service out of that. But all my IMAP is is it is not belong to us right now. <laughs> it's yeah. somewhere. It's somewhere else. So we'll see what happens with that. I had many years of great experience with them when that when I had a thing in a rack and then for a long time in a cloud too. But 
the cloud got attacked and a lot of us are victims. And so yeah, the, well, the, the, the great advantage of having a thing in Iraq, the great advantage and disadvantage is when something goes wrong, it was your fault. <laughs> I know that's, that's true, um, you know, and they warned me for a long time saying something's going to go wrong with that thing. It's very old, you know, and I, yeah. you know, and I had some backup on it for a while, but, um, but finally got out of it thinking that the cloud itself is backup and it was not. So, um, and I should have done some of my own. I own some of that too. Anyway, so um, uh, next week, and I'm looking here at John Abbey, um, Cointelligence Institute um, uh, and Community is going to be on. Uh, I hope they pronounced that right. Abbey, A-B-B-E. Stays low in the alphabet there. So (laughs) has the advantage of, being at the beginning of the alphabet, a voice of being an S, I'm toward the end. I'm used to that. Anyway, this has been great. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Um, yep. Thanks, thanks to the guys. And, uh, and we will see you all next week. Hey, folks, I'm Ant Pruitt. And what do you get your favorite tech geek that has everything? A Club Twit gift subscription, of course. Twit podcasts keep them informed and entertained with the most relevant tech news podcasts available. With the Club Twit subscription, they get access to all of our podcasts ad-free. They also get access to our members-only Discord, access to exclusive outtakes, behind-the-scenes, and special content such as AMAs, which I just love hosting, plus exclusive shows such as Hands on Mac, Hands on Windows, and the Untitled Linux Show. Purchase your geek's gift at twit.tv slash club twit, and it will thank you every day.